0: Well hey everybody, it is great to see you whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're in the fourth week of a series that we've called Reinventing Religion. And as I've mentioned, I think it's some of the most important material that I've ever covered with you because it takes us right to the heart both of what Jesus came to do and who his followers are are to be in our world today. And so to get us going uh, with our conversation this morning, I need to make a seemingly random confession. It goes like this. I have a really hard time loving people who mistreat my kids, okay? Uh, here's a picture of my boys. Uh, people always ask, you know, what about the girls? And I always say, well, we tried four times. And when the fourth one came out with red hair, we took that as a sign from God to stop. So there you go, four, four boys Um, but I really struggle with people who mistreat my kids. It could be like an unfair teacher or a coach that has the audacity to play their kid instead of one of my kids, even though it is obvious to everyone that my kids are the superior athletes, (laughs) right? I mean, they get it from somewhere, right? Or or maybe it's like one of their friends who somehow takes advantage of them or or says something that hurts them. Like, People may not know it, but when you mess with one of my kids, when you mistreat him, you kind of have an issue with me, right? And and now to be fair, the reverse of this is also totally true. Like one of the best things that you can do for me is to do something nice for one of my boys. It's almost like when you take care of one of them, in a weird way, you kind of take care of me, Okay, rant over. I wanted to start there because of where the talk lands, but before I show you uh, where we're headed, I need to review a little bit for those of you who haven't been with us. uh, This is one of those series that kind of builds on itself. So if it's your first time uh, either tuning in online or with us in the room, do not worry. I will catch you up. And if you want to go deeper in any of the stuff we review, I'll point you to the website, Uh, but we began three weeks ago by making a foundational observation for this entire series, and it goes like this. God sent Jesus to completely reinvent religion, completely. In other words, the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth around 2,000 years ago signaled the end of one era in religion and the dawn of another, One in which traditional religious forms and understandings would be rendered functionally obsolete. Uh, We also noted that traditionally religions have organized around four common components. Like all over the world, here's what you find. uh, Sacred places, sacred texts, sacred leaders, and then sincere followers. In other words, ancient religions almost always identified sacred places, most often temples of one kind or another, into which... People could come and worship and bring sacrifices in order to make and maintain peace with the gods. Uh, These sacred places also served as a location where sacred texts were housed that were controlled and interpreted by, of course, sacred religious leaders who would tell the sincere followers how to live their lives, like the to-dos and the to-don'ts, or else. (laughs) Or else they might be cursed or punished by the god for whom that particular religion was developed. Now, not surprisingly, when you you put yourself into this grid, um, it it shouldn't shock us at all that people in the ancient world often lived with this simmering fear of being judged unworthy by the gods, and maybe even being sentenced to eternal punishment in some sort of underworld because of their behavior. Anyway, it was into that reality that God sent Jesus with a mission to completely reinvent religion. And as we've noted, the specifics of that reinvention were simultaneously stunning and disruptive. Uh, Here's just two highlights to show you what I mean. First, uh, Jesus established a new covenant or testament, covenant and testament mean the same thing, uh, between people and God. Under previous religious covenants, individual people were required to make and maintain peace With the divine but but under his new covenant Jesus taught that he would make peace and he would maintain peace for people with the one true God and he would do it once and for all by shedding his blood on the cross moreover if you think about it because it was his faithfulness and not human obedience that brought about this peace then people no longer needed to worry where they stood with God In other words, in Jesus' reinvention of religion, and this is just amazing, freedom and clarity could replace uncertainty and anxiety. And that, as ancient people noted, was good news. That's where we get the word gospel. If you've been around church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what he accomplished on our behalf. So that's the first thing, the new covenant. The second thing that Jesus gave his followers was a new command. And the new command honestly didn't sound much like a new command to them when they first heard it, but then as they thought through the implications of it, they understood that what Jesus was doing, it wasn't just a new command, it was a command that would supersede all the other commands. And in fact, this new command was to become like an ethical filter that could direct the behavior of followers of Jesus. And he phrased this new command for his disciples this way during the last supper that he shared with them, before he was betrayed, he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he goes on, by this, by this love, like when you love like I loved you, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This love that Jesus describes is to be the hallmark of his disciples. And then if you fast forward a bit in the New Testament, you find that there's a pastor named Paul who decades after the resurrection of Jesus articulated Jesus' new command, what I think even greater clarity in a letter he wrote to early Christians living in a Roman province called Galatia. Here's what Paul said to them. He said to followers of Jesus, the only thing that counts, as far as like you're wondering about how God wants you to live, how Jesus wants you to live as his follower, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through Love. He says to them, Listen, at the end of the day, followers of Jesus are to love other people. And all of the rest is details. And you start to see like, how powerful love, as Jesus described it, can be. Well, so for the first 300 years or so uh, during church history, everything went relatively well when it came to Christians loving like Jesus loved. Certainly not perfect, but that was, that was their trajectory. And then came a moment when the church reached a crossroads of sorts. And if you were with us last week, you know that I gave you a bit of a history lesson. And if you weren't, just know that uh, we discussed how early in the fourth century, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. And as a result, it began to shift from a movement to more of an institution. And, And consequently, some of the elements of traditional religions, which were always institutionalized, That basically came to be incorporated into the Jesus movement. And and honestly, that's why so many of us who grew up in church grew up in versions of Christianity that have been shaped not so much by what Jesus had in mind, but by traditional religious assumptions. More practically, that's why for many of us, what makes us feel guilty, religiously speaking, isn't at all what Jesus intended for his followers. And here's why I think that's such a big deal. I'm convinced that that's one of the things that actually can hold us back as individuals. And I think it's one of the things that can hold us back as a community of faith who's trying to shine the light of Jesus into our world. Okay, so last week, right before I let you go, I gave you a couple of questions to illustrate how traditional religious thinking may have impacted you. And so I just want to review two of those just to kind of set the stage for what comes next. Here's the first one. Um, I asked, have you ever wondered how close to sin you could get without sinning? And it would actually be better for me to say, if you've never wondered that, one you stand up, right? We can just clap, right? Have you ever wondered how close to sin you can get without sinning? Have you ever wondered, okay, God, where exactly is that line? That, like, if I cross that line, then you're gonna get mad at me and might allow some bad things to happen to me. Like, I don't want that to happen. So, like, where's the line? And if you've ever had that thought, which is like all of us, right? You need to know that that has been, sh- that thought has been way more shaped by traditional religious assumptions than what Jesus had in mind for his followers. Okay, so that's the first one. Second question went like this Have you ever felt guiltier about missing church than you did about how you treated someone at work? In other words, If you've ever suspected that it was more important to be in a sacred place, to hear sacred things, than it is to treat someone you work with well and with respect, then your thinking has been shaped by traditional religious assumptions, and that's not what Jesus had in mind for his followers. All right, so if you stop and think about it, and I have because it's kind of like my job, right? the the traditional religious impulses that Jesus came to retire are all pretty self-centered because they all revolve around a question that goes like this. What must I do in order to make and keep things right between God and me? Like, tell me, what what do I need to, to do? And this traditional impulse that sort of lurks in the background of our imagination, it drives us to obsess over whether or not God is okay with us. Which means that at the center of this approach to God isn't really God, it's us. And and this thinking, it's, it's subtle, but it can affect all sorts of things. It can affect the way we pray, It can drive us to pray things like, God, thank you for this day. Help me, bless me, watch over me, and help my kids. Do you notice anything going on in the, yeah, yeah. And some of you just thought, wait, okay, like how else should we pray? Well, stay tuned. We'll get there, right? Anyway, traditional religious impulses can also impact our thinking as it pertains to church attendance. Like, it can drive us to think things like, hey, God, did you see where I was last Sunday? I mean, never mind what happened Friday night. We're not talking about that, right? That was not good. We agreed about that. But I was in church on Sunday, so I get a gold star or a punch in my card, right? That's how that works. And this thinking also can impact why we give money to the church or to people in need. It can lead us to think something like, okay, God, you know, I, I've, I've done really well lately, but, but I did give, give. I gave, right? So we're good, right? So we'll just keep the blessings flowing kind of a thing. And so here's the thing. It's so interesting. Like people on the outside of your life looking in see you praying and attending church and giving money, and, and that looks very God-centric. But at the end of the day, like under traditional religious thinking, that's really more about us. And again, that's not what Jesus had in mind. In fact, I would go as far as to say that's a form of self-centered religion that Jesus actually invites us to abandon. Because honestly, in Jesus' reinvention of religion, our religious impulses are supposed to shift from ourselves to other people and the specifics of how to love them. Like seriously, and and here's something that's pretty amazing. If you take that one idea and you use it as a sort of filter as you read the New Testament, you'll discover something absolutely amazing. The text will come to life for you in a way that you've probably never experienced before because, and I absolutely love this, throughout the New Testament, every single religious imperative, all those to-dos and to-don'ts that are told to Jesus' followers are really just specific examples of how to love other people. In other words, love is to be the filter for the behavior of the life of a Jesus follower. And so what I want to do now is just show you what I mean by briefly exploring a few New Testament commands. And the first one I want to show you comes from a letter written by a pastor named Paul a couple of decades after the resurrection of Jesus to Christians living in a city called Ephesus here's what Paul tells them that they need to do. He says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In other words, tell the truth, right? And, and, and like, that's a pretty traditional religious rule. Generally, we, you know, whatever religion you're in tells you that. But do you know why followers of Jesus should tell the truth? I mean, is it because it's in the Bible? And it is, right? And traditional religious thinking would say, yes, you do this because it's in the Bible and you're a person of faith and you respect the Bible so you do what the Bible says, or at least that's why you need to do what you should do, right? But Jesus would say to his followers, you need to tell the truth because honestly, when you lie, you hurt the person who you deceived. In other words, the reason that Christians shouldn't lie isn't that the authors of the New Testament right? Don't lie. The reason God told those authors to tell the people not to lie is because, and this is super deep, you can write this down, God cares about people, right? So traditional religion essentially says, tell the truth so God will love you or God will bless you. But Jesus says, tell the truth because that's one of the ways that you can love other people, Okay, so here's another one um, from Paul. This one is taken from a letter he wrote to early Christians, uh, once again in Ephesus, but this was a letter directed to their pastor. It was a younger pastor by the name of Timothy. So you're getting sage, older pastor Paul, like Yoda, talking to young Padawan pastor Timothy. And here's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, teach those who are rich in this world, and Ephesus was a major metropolitan center. There were wealthy people within the church. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. He goes on, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. All right, so that sounds simple enough, right? But, but maybe think about it this way. Do you know why followers of Jesus are supposed to be generous? Are we supposed to be generous simply because it's commanded in the Bible? Or are we supposed to be generous because if we give, then God will bless us? Or if we don't give, God won't bless us? It's like, well, actually, it's a a lot simpler than that. And you should totally write this down again. This is, we're supposed to be generous. I worked on this all week. We're supposed to be generous because, wait for it. Generosity helps people. Thank you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So let's go over that again. Like you give to them and it helps them. It's a way to demonstrate love to them. And my point is this really isn't about God at all. And that's amazing because as we've said, if you're a Christian if you've accepted the gift of Jesus when he died on the cross to bring you peace with God, then you're fine with God. And, and so, so just be, now that you're fine with God, he would say, like, just like he has been generous to you because he loves you, you should be generous to other people as a way to love them, Okay, we got to do one more just because I'm on a roll having a good time. Okay, it's another one that's found in Paul's letter to Christians living in Ephesus. So here's what he writes at a different spot. He says to them, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths." We have four boys. We talk about this one all the time in my place. Yeah. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit who? Those who listen, it's like all over here. It's like this religious rule is not about you. So again, why should followers of Jesus avoid talking badly about other people? Is it because the Bible says, or Paul says, not to gossip or use angry speech? I mean, it does say that. But as we have probably already guessed, that's not the reason. Christians, followers of Jesus, shouldn't gossip because, again, if you're taking notes, here's another one. Gossip hurts people, right? It it, it like undermines someone else's integrity in the minds of other people. Think about it. Like when you gossip, when I gossip, we're like elevating ourselves at the expense of someone else. So I think Paul would say to these early followers of Jesus, listen, he's the same guy that wrote the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He says, listen, you can't love your neighbor like Jesus loved you and gossip." It just doesn't work. And you can't love your neighbor like Jesus loved you and lie. And you can't love your neighbor like Jesus loved you and be stingy. I guess what I'm trying to say is like all of those New Testament commands are really just examples of what it means to love other people like Jesus loved us. And moreover, and again, I think this is worth noting, God didn't give us an example for every situation in the letters in the New Testament, because he didn't need to. And that's the brilliance. He knew that this one command to love, if we followed it, it would be enough. Okay, so I know what some of you who were raised in a religious background like I was um, are thinking right now. You have an objection. Um, Because, okay, you grew up in a church where a lot of the emphasis was on, okay, we need to follow the rules in order to keep God on our side. And if that's you, the question you're probably asking is something like this. Okay, time out. That sounds great. That sounds a lot more like freedom than what I've ever experienced, but it can't possibly be that simple, can it? I mean, love people? Like, what about all the details? Have you seen the Bible? It's pretty thick. I mean, this whole just love people, if I'm honest, it feels a little bit like Woodstock for Christians. That's what it feels like, right? It's just this big peace, love, gushy festival thing. It's like that, but I mean, it can't really be that. It, I mean, religion is complicated. It's been complicated my whole life. This feels very not complicated. So it sounds great, but I'm sorry, it can't possibly be that simple. And if that's you. I need you to lean in for a second um, because here's what you need to know, and it goes like this. Religion as Jesus intended is less complicated. That's very true. But check this out. It's also far more demanding. And I can prove it to you. I mean, at the very center of Christianity is a man who died covered in his own blood because he loves us. I mean, that's how far this goes. So religion, as Jesus intended, is less complicated, but it's way more demanding. And it isn't just more demanding for Jesus. I mean, think about this. Um, it, again, if you were raised in organized religion like I was, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to find justification for ignoring a religious rule that you don't like, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's like, this is where you go, mm, right? Because yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's, we can always, always say something like, well, I don't necessarily think that's what that rule means, right? Or Jesus never specifically mentioned that sin. He never talked about spending too much time on Netflix. I mean, come on, right? Yeah. Or, or I know that Paul said some to, that to some early Christians in that passage, but look what he says over here. It's almost like there might be a contradiction. So I think I have a little bit of wiggle room. Like There's a little bit of gray area that I can maneuver it's like in traditional models of religion, you can almost always find a workaround that enables you to ignore a rule that you don't like. But how do you find a loophole with regards to Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you? And I'm telling you, this is why the Christian faith is so spectacular. Because when you really make a decision to follow Jesus, there's no place. To hide. Like, there's no loopholes, there's no shortcuts, there's no workarounds. I absolutely love how a pastor from Atlanta, Georgia, summarized all of this in a recent book. He said this He he says, If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus the way that Jesus intended, right? And you want to do it, um, and you want to have something that you can carry with you that you can pull out anytime you feel that tension, like, I don't know what to do. Here's what he says to do He says, You ask this question, what Does love require of me? Like in this situation, if I'm going to leverage love, what does love require of me? What should I do? You're like, well, what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Well, you know this verse. It's like, what does love require of me in this situation? If you want to know what Jesus wants you to do, simply ask the question. And then, of course, you don't have to just ask the question. You have to do, right, whatever it is that you need to do. It's really that simple. Okay, so now, um, if you're paying attention, a few of you have another really great question. I mean, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, Christianity is supposed to be all about loving people. Got it. But I'm just kind of wondering, um, where does that leave God? Because for my whole life, my faith has been you know, monitoring my relationship with God. And I see what you're saying. Because of the cross, I don't need to do this. And I need to worry about this. I gotcha. But, but what, what about... God? Like, what, how am I supposed to think about God? And, and, and that actually, you know, it makes sense, but, but what, what are we supposed to do with God? And it's actually a question that Jesus answered for some of his first followers when he was on earth. Um, and he does it in a way that's a little bit cryptic, and it's a longer passage than we normally read in one stretch, but I want to just read it to you, and you'll see why uh, when we conclude. So Jesus one day looks at his followers, and he says this. Speaking of himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. You're like, see, you already lost me. Hang on. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay, super weird. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then then Jesus says, then the king will reply, truly I tell you, and this is just, wow. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When you demonstrated love to them, it was like you were demonstrating love to me. I'm telling you, in Jesus' reinvention of religion, our religious impulses are supposed to shift from ourselves and this relationship to other people. Because in Jesus' design, your love and devotion to God is demonstrated and authenticated by your love for other people. Oh, and, and by the way, remember at the top of the talk when I mentioned if you did something nice for one of my boys, it was like you did something... Nice for me. I mean, what if it's really that simple? As simple as asking, What does love require, and then doing it? Well, I have spent 22 years now studying the Bible, and I'm convinced that it really is supposed to be that simple. And I'm telling you, that's good news for you. And that's good news for the whole world. All right, now I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time together in prayer. And after I pray once again this week, um, if you've come and there's something in your life you'd like to connect with someone who could offer you some encouragement and some prayer, I would love to invite you to join under the screen uh, to your left. And so let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, It's a bit overwhelming for those of us who grew up in traditional religious settings to be confronted by the simplicity and the beauty of what Jesus intended for his church. And I pray that as we wrestle these ideas down in our own minds and hearts this week, I pray that that we would be reminded that we are called to love because you first loved us, that You don't love us because we are good. You love us because you are good. And through Jesus, you have adopted us into your family. And so we thank you. We wonder at that gift. It's it's beyond our imagination. And we bless you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.